Blog Talk Radio. to welcome each and every one of you to today's show. Happy Friday and welcome. I'm Zenobia Bailey and I am very pleased to be here. Today we are continuing our reading regarding the generational principle of aging. In one of her insets, Susan Hunt says, When we put down the pen, stop trying to write our story or the stories of others and wholeheartedly trust the author of our story to write his gospel story in our lives, we begin to see the mundane and the miserable moments as essential sentences that eventually become a majestic story of grace, because the plot of dirt where we die is also the place where we flourish. Wow. That really hits me. I don't know about you, but sometimes I tend to think, and especially when I was raising my three children in their infancy and youth, I sometimes saw my tasks and my contributions as being somewhat mundane. I don't ever think I thought of them as being miserable, but mundane for sure. And even now, I have tasks that can become mundane, even professional tasks. But those are my judgments and maybe judgments of others concerning not only themselves, but of me. And Susan has opened another layer for me, and perhaps she's done the same for you, or if you did not receive it in that way, perhaps what I'm sharing through her will help you to see that there is nothing mundane in the economy of God. Rather, they are moments, essential moments, and she calls them essential sentences, this being strung together as a sentence or sentences that eventually form our personal, majestic story of grace. That's a lot to chew on, and I have not even begun to continue reading from the book itself. So let me do that now. Picking up. She says, the generational principle is expanded in Jesus' great commission to disciple the nations. Older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women. Declaring the gospel to the next generation 
is a characteristic of living covenantally. We can be life-giving spiritual mothers even, and perhaps especially, in old age. I no longer have the physical or mental energy to teach a weekly Bible study, but here are a few ways I'm learning to be missional in this season. Through the privilege of prayer. I love Paul's mother imagery in Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. They were Christians, but Paul longed for Christ to be formed, to grow bigger in them. There is much we cannot do, but we can labor in prayer for the formation of Christ in the lives of those entrusted to us. I never knew my great-grandmother Cassie, but since I was a girl, I heard about her love for Jesus and that she prayed for her children and for the generations to come. I am an answer to her prayers, and now my prayers mingle with hers as I pray for the generations to come. The power of Scripture. A young mama in our church was facing cancer surgery. Women were mobilizing to take care of her practical needs, but I was not physically able to help. Finally, I told her my frustration and asked if there was anything I could do. She smiled and said, yes, my mind is so scattered. I cannot think what scriptures to read. Will you send me some verses? I was immediately on it, emailing some verses and then texting a verse each morning. She repeatedly told me how the verses helped her deal with fear and gave her comfort and peace. We both flourished, and so did our friendship. When our grandchildren were little, Jean and I memorized scripture with them. Now they are busy young adults, so we text them a scripture verse every morning, and we ask the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in their lives. Then they're stewarding our marriage. Jean and I are overwhelmed with God's gift of a long and happy marriage. We pray we will be good stewards of this gift and show our grandchildren and the young couples in our church that by God's grace, marriage can grow sweeter each and every day. The fruitfulness of one-on-one conversations. For years, I coordinated a women's ministry. I loved it, but it left little time for couch conversations, just sitting and talking. 25 years ago, these conversations would have been laced with solutions. Now, with a grateful nod to William Cowper, my conversations with young women are guided by his deep reflections on God's providence as expressed in his hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Way. Here's a sampling of these conversations. No one prepares you for how hard marriage and parenting are. When our spouses and children disappoint us, it's easy to feel self-pity and sadness. 
When our kids are mistreated or upset, it affects us. I know scripture says to trust the Lord and find joy in him, but it is hard. The struggle is real. How can I be a life giver while dealing with the realities of marriage and parenthood? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, puts his footsteps in the sea, and rides upon the storm. I do not feel as if I'm flourishing, someone says. I'm just existing. My relationships with a couple exceptions are one-sided. My marriage is not bad, but it's not alive or vibrant. I seldom feel wanted. Needed, yes, everyone needs me to do things for them. <coughs> Excuse me. Or known simply for who I am. I try to press on by reading my Bible, but I still feel as though I just continue like a plant with green leaves and sap, but no blooms or fruit. Well, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, God treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Another said, my adult children's choices break my heart. From the time they were born, I protected them. Now I can't control what they do, so I can't protect them from the consequences of their choices. I want to stay strong and finish well but I'm emotionally exhausted. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Someone else says, it's hard to believe my husband left me after almost three decades of marriage. Last night was difficult. I fixated on what he did rather than on Jesus and what he has done and is doing. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And then someone says, I'm almost 50. My job is so boring. The women gossip and manipulate. How can I be a life giver when they are sucking the life out of me? Sister, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. These conversations feel familiar because they remind me of situations Jesus used to wean me from it, relying on myself to fix everyone and everything and woo me to trust his providence. It has taken decades for me to learn to be still and know that he is God and that in quietness and in trust shall be my strength. One joy of aging is a stillness of soul that helps us see the small moments as sacred moments when we can reflect God's glory to someone else. I often encourage young women to watch for heavenly hugs 
those seemingly ordinary things like a kind word or deed at just the moment we need it, and to praise God for his tender care. Length of days prepares us to help younger people see and trust God's sovereign providence in their lives. Sometimes I ask questions to help women think biblically and live covenantally. For instance, I might ask, what is your reference point as you evaluate this relationship or situation? What is your authority? Is it the Bible or is it your feelings? What will it mean for you to submit to God's authority and glorify him as a life giver? Are you willing to repent of any ways you are being a life taker? What will it cost you to die to self? And what can I do to help you? All these are powerful questions, beloved. And I especially like when someone's going through something to learn what it is that I can do to help them. And I just have to insert here that, oh, it's been, oh, my gosh, 30 years now, 30 years or more, when I heard Sharon Betters ask a sister in church who was going through some very troubling times. Uh, we, were, we were finishing up a Bible study, and I was just passing by. And Sharon, if you're listening to this recording at any point in your life, I don't remember. I think I might have told you how much that question blessed my heart. Because it was with that that I stopped saying to people, it was at that point, I stopped saying to people, let me know if I can do something. And I flipped it when I heard her say, when I heard you say, what can I do to help you? Ah, that's powerful, ladies. And gentlemen, if gentlemen are listening. Okay, moving on. Susan offers uh, Psalm 71, verses 19 through 24, and she's categorized it under anticipating future glory. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities, will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteousness, of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Remembering God's sovereign providence and love takes us full circle to where we began with worship. It is because God does all things right that the juxtaposition of him 
causing the great things and the many troubles and calamities is comforting and not bewildering. It all works together to accomplish God's purpose in our life. David looks ahead to the resurrection with hope and joy. We shortchange the beautiful concept of flourishing unless we acknowledge that full flourishing comes at physical death. J.I. Packer wrote, Dying well is one of the good works to which Christians are called, and Christ will enable us who serve him to die well. No matter how gruesome the physical process might be. And dying thus in Christ, through Christ, and with Christ will be a spiritual blossoming. Tim Keller explains the Christian hope is a hope that you're going to get the life you always wanted. Our Christian hope is that we're going to live with Christ in a new earth where there is not only no more death, but where life is what it was always meant to be. Our character and daily life are shaped by what we believe about our ultimate future. And Charles Spurgeon sums it up. Those who die daily will die easily. When David was told that Absalom died in battle, he lamented, Oh, my son Absalom, my son my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? But David could not take his son's place. There is only one who could take our place and be our substitute. Psalm 71 shows us the power of the gospel to break through and outdistance our sin, shame, sorrow, and suffering to draw us into greater intimacy with Jesus and to motivate us to talk of God's righteous help all the day long. It shows the power of prayer to anchor our soul. In one of her last letters, Elizabeth Prentice, who suffered ill health and the death of children, wrote, Much of my experiences of life has cost me a great price and I wish to use it for strengthening and comforting other souls. Her hymn is the prayer of a flourishing, growing, fruitful heart. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. And then I'm going to uh, fast forward a little bit and uh, read Carol's story as penned by Susan Hunt. Never say never. I was married to a man in ministry for 47 years. He wasn't a Boy Scout. He didn't like surprises or adventures or flying. He was six foot three and didn't sit in airline seats. I grew up camping, riding horses, trying weird foods, and moving to Guam when I was 10. 
I loved adventure. If you had asked me when I was a young pastor's wife with four boys without much money and no extra time, what would be my dream in life? I would have said to travel the world and teach women God's word. Obviously, it would never happen because my husband hated to travel. But here I am, 82 years old, a widow of 14 years, traveling the world and teaching women. And I did it with my husband the last nine years of his life. He was never happier. Between the time we married and our last years of marriage, there were wilderness years when I was a life taker to my husband. I loved being a mother, but I did not love being a wife. That time felt waste that time felt like wasted years, but in that wilderness, God lovingly prepared, taught, broke, and changed me. He gave me the message he planned for me to share with others. My failure to be the wife my husband needed and how God changed me rather than me trying to change my husband is now the main theme of my ministry to women around the world. To me, flourishing means gratefully accepting the past and present trials God gives me and looking for opportunities to use what I have learned to help others. My passion now is to encourage others to see the powerful ministry of marriage, the picture God has given of the relationship between Christ and his church. The enemy hates this picture and will do whatever it takes to damage and destroy it. Marriages are in trouble all over the world. As an older woman, I can give a perspective that younger men and women need in order to persevere. Whatever situations we find ourselves in as we age, there are nuggets of gold in our past that we can pass on to others. God never wastes a trial, a grief, or a wilderness wandering. We flourish when we give to others the lessons that God has taught us. And I say, a hearty amen to that. Thank you for listening. And I, as always, I'd like to wish you a wonderful rest of your day and weekend. We will continue next week with almost the conclusion, almost not quite, the conclusion of Aging with Grace flourishing in an anti-aging culture.